So, yeah, you might want to just let the body have whatever stretch it might need to support you as we begin our day of practice together. Mm. Yeah. This, <clears throat> this body that is the ground of all of our practice uh, is the arena for exploring uh, each of these satipatthanas that are shaping our uh, time and our, our kind of curriculum together. <laughs> You'll remember that we, we began on Monday, Christina offering um, reflections on this first and kind of primary foundation uh, of the body. And then we moved to the second foundation or we, we incorporated, we included the second foundation within that inquiry, which was around Vedana feeling tone reactivity. And then yesterday uh, we expanded further. Christina offered reflections on this third way of establishing mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind or minding or mental coloring, we could say. Um, and um, we've also included uh, mention of two key aspects of the fourth Satipatthana, the, the list of the hindrances or the factors that veil clarity, veil understanding, and also the awakening factors, um, which, which uh, the Buddha describes as anti-hindrances. <laughs> they, they counteract the hindrances. So these are the two key lists from the fourth Satipatthana. So that's, that's kind of our landscape here. And I'd like this morning just to offer a few reflections on an aspect of uh, our experience uh, that we could place within the third Satipatthana of mental states, though it actually bridges all of the Satipatthanas in different ways. And that's the aspect of thinking and thought. Uh, the Buddha doesn't mention it in the third Satipatthana of mental states, but we can see, can't we, just how influential our thinking is on the mental states of the moment, right? I mean, how does one intensify a difficult mental state? Oh, by thinking a lot, <laughs> yeah? Um, but let's just acknowledge that um, this is a dharma, this is a teaching that recognizes both the, what we could call the kind of automatic or obvious levels of thinking that we can identify, oh yeah, that's a thought, but also the deeper structures of perception and cognition that really construct the world of our experience. This, and this is, you know, this is a profound reflection. The Buddha's, uh, says the first verse of the most famous collection of the Buddha's teachings, the Dhammapada, says all experience 
is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. All experience is made, is constructed by mind, by cognition, by perception. So, so that includes certainly what psychologists would call automatic thoughts, core beliefs about ourselves that shape the, what we could call the personality, but also fundamentals like subject and object, you know, self and other, space and time, space and time. These are not kind of objective givens in Buddhist psychology. They are all, uh, to use that word that Christina used the other day, sankata, which means constructions. They're all fabrications, if you like, of cognition, of our conceptual frameworks. So really our, you know, our experience is constructed by different kinds and levels of thought creates what uh, Christina called the architecture of our experience. And so this, uh, you know, this is a kind of humblingly radical uh, dharma in that way. It's a humblingly radical understanding of our experience as constructed, as fabricated, and therefore uh, not binding, not uh, limiting, not enslaving. So, you know, this topic of thoughts and thinking is a, is a, is a huge one and a potentially deeply uh, liberating one. Um, and as meditators, we can have a kind of view that the aim in meditation is to get rid of thoughts. Anybody notice that kind of belief that comes up when you're meditating? Oh, I wish they could just go away. You know, if I, a good meditation is one when I don't have so much thinking, you know? Yeah. So it just can easily seem like thoughts are the obstacle. And this is, this is not the case. This is not the case. You know, the, the, there is a real place in the Dharma for reflective thinking, creative thinking. We spoke last evening about thoughts that re-perceive our experience. You know, the thought, oh, thoughts are not facts. Or may you be safe and well, may you be peaceful. Re-perceiving another. Uh, not me, not mine is a thought that that we perceive. So the you know th thoughts are uh, inevitable shapers of experience. The the aim is not freedom from thoughts, but we could say freedom with thoughts and thinking and perception. Freedom with thinking. And so, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well. At one level, we could say perhaps there are three 
aims in our practice around this, one level would be just in general to develop a more spacious relationship with thought and thinking that is less identified with every thought that comes up, less reactive, more able to see thoughts in a, in a decentered way, you know, as thought buses that come along and want to take us for a ride rather than being the truth of, of how things are. So that kind of more general, over time, cultivating more spacious relationship with thought. A second aim might be developing skill at working with difficult and habitual thought patterns. You know, those times when thinking is really painful or really entangling. To develop our skill in those situations, those moments. And, and the third, and again, perhaps the most radical, is to, to develop our understanding of the shaping influence of thought and perception and cognition. To develop our, and there's a, you know, there's a lot of depth in that. It's a lifetime's understanding of the shaping influence of thought, perception and cognition. The, the teachings really highlight uh, the factors that intensify and entangle us in, <clears throat> you know, loops or, as the Buddha calls them, nets of thinking and overthinking and fixation with thoughts. And uh, reactivity to the Vedana of mood is a key piece here, isn't it? Reactivity to the Vedana of mood. This was the insight that gave rise to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, where they were seeking uh, to help prevent those of us who have a history of depression from going into relapse uh, when we're in a state of remission from that depression. And they saw that the moment of vulnerability, the moment of vulnerability is when ordinary low mood, it's, it's reactivity to the ordinary low mood that any of us experience. And that what can kick in, if we've had a history of depression especially, is reaction to the unpleasantness of that. Oh, I'm back here again. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, what does this mean about me? It means that I've not got better. None of my efforts to get better have helped. What does this mean about my future? It means I'm always going to be plagued with depression. And, and that reactivity to the unpleasant Vedana of ordinary low mood, you know, that's a way of understanding vulnerability to depression, but also to anxiety in all its different flavors, you know, to obsessive compulsive patterns, to PTSD, the, the unpleasantness, the Vedana of the moods and mental states triggers thoughts that are trying to solve that, to get rid of that unpleasantness which is what we try to do with unpleasant Vedana. We try to get rid of it, 
get away from it, you know? And so it's like, as Mark Williams puts it, it's the, the, the problem solving mode of mind comes along trying to help solve this low mood and, and uh, actually ends up creating webs and nets of what the Buddha calls papancha. Papancha, I'm going to try to type that in the box here. Because um, uh, it's such a key term, papancha. Um, means lots of, you know, lots of aspects to it. it, it it's, it's equivalent to what psychologists tend to mean by rumination, which is also quite a rich and multi-dimensional term. Papancha lit literally could mean to multiply, to make things more complicated, to elaborate, to, to also to make things seem real, to make things seem real. That's part of the, that word, that, that it makes my thoughts about the future, say, seem real, <laughs> yeah? Seem solid, we could say. And the Buddha really highlights in the, uh, just how automatic papancha, how automatically papancha can be triggered by reactivity to Vedana, to unpleasantness. Yeah? Does every, do we all recognize that? Yeah? Kind of rumination, Rumination, which is repeat loop overthinking, isn't it? Repeat loop overthinking also can have a quality of fixation. So it may feel like I'm just fixated on a scary thought or a scary image or a, or a anger provoking thought or image. And, and so rumination or papancha can have that kind of fixated quality. Yeah. The later tradition in the commentaries identifies three particular themes that around which papancha often resolves. The, the first is just basic reactivity, craving, re reactivity, aversion. Yeah. So when I really want something, the mind gets busy <laughs> trying to plan how to get it. Yeah. When I want to get rid of something, aversion, again, it gets very busy trying to solve it, remove it. The Buddha also highlighted, or sorry, the later commentaries highlighted uh, how views and opinions is another theme for our rumination and our multiplication. And, and don't we just notice that, yeah? <laughs> don't we just notice that in the media? You know, just how much of what happens in the media is just papancha, about views and opinions with the belief in their solidity, belief in the worlds that they seem to construct. Yeah. Um, the third uh, is, is kind of preoccupation with the self. Preoccupation with the self, particularly the comparing mind, the judging mind about myself. Yeah. Yeah, anybody notice that one? 
you know, that, 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 that kind of comparing, judging my other, comparing with others or comparing with some idealized standard about how I should be, what I should be like, how I should look, how I should feel, how my meditation practice should be, that that can generate a lot of papancha, a lot of um, rumination. I appreciate Christina also kind of suggesting a fourth theme for papancha, which is fear-based papancha kind of an aspect of that that first one reactivity but it feels in our times and over the last few months it feels kind of uh, helpful to acknowledge just how much papancha rumination preoccupation world creation world creation uh, is generated by fear don't we notice this yeah don't we just notice this? It's what one Tibetan teacher describes as being like drawing a lion on a piece of paper and then getting afraid of what you've drawn. You draw the lion, think, oh my goodness, it's a lion, you know? And, and the mind is reacting to the, the mirage that it's created that is scary. Uh, which is just so easy to believe. That's part of this papancha dynamic that it seems so real, seems so real. You know? the, both the past and the future narratives, the constructions of past and future, which are just constructions, according to the Dharma, they, papancha makes them seem so real. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm guessing we all know this. Um, so what, what can we do? How can we practice with this? Well, grounding in the body, so helpful, so helpful in relation to patterns of thinking, whether, whether that thinking is quite light or whether it's intense. You know, Just noticing that your feet are not ruminating about that difficult meeting last week. Yeah. Your, your chest may well be caught up in the emotion about the difficult meeting last week or the, the appointment tomorrow. The breathing may be quite involved in that, papancha. The feet are not bothered. <laughs> your heel bones are not bothered. Your sit bones are not judging you. Yeah. Your tailbone is not uh, caught up in planning your next ret retreat. Yeah. The hands in the lap are not bored, you know. This is really helpful to know and that to take attention into those grounds in the body can quite, sometimes quite significantly reduce the, the charge in thinking. Some of you will, will also be familiar with, with noticing and naming different kinds of thinking. Oh, planning. Oh, so much planning. You know, or rehearsing, you know, rehearsing a conversation, for instance, you know, regretting, uh, judging. You know. yeah. Christina sometimes talks about entertainment thinking, you know, where the mind is just kind of playing its jukebox of thoughts and tunes, you know, just to kind of, for no apparent reason, you know. And to notice what's the effect when I do name it. Oh, look, there's planning. It does create this space. There's, 
implied in that is it's planning, it's not me, it's not mine. It's not who I am, it's just planning. Part of what that helps us to see is uh, what the Buddha again and again addresses our attention to in the sutta, which is the impermanence, the changing flow of thinking. I sometimes find it helpful to imagine thinking like a kind of bubbling stream that's just burbling away, flowing through the larger landscape of awareness, you know. And just let it bubble away, let it burble away, making its kind of of flowing, ever-changing, flickering quality of thinking. In one very very interestingly autobiographical sutta, the the Buddha also um, kind of remembers and retells how before he gained enlightenment, he developed a way of discerning putting thoughts basically in two piles. One, helpful thoughts that were kind of, prom- kind of promoting Nibbana, promote, well, promoting well-being for self and others and, and leading to Nibbana. And one, unhelpful thoughts that were, take, were not helpful for me or for others were taking me away from Nibbana. And that can be helpful just to recognize, oh, this, th- this thought loop that I'm caught in, it's just suffering. <laughs> It's just suffering. It's volunteering for suffering, you know. So, so just to kind of have that discernment can be very, very helpful, I think. With more intense thought patterns, um, sometimes, uh, as Christina mentioned yesterday, to tune into what is the emotion that's fueling this. So, Sometimes we almost, we can't quite stop the intensity at the level of the thinking, but like ducking under the thinking and feeling the center of the chest and feeling, okay, what's the emotion? Oh, it's anxiety. Or, oh, it's anger that's fueling this. Or, oh, it's grief that's fueling this. And kind of letting some of the pressure out of the emotional body out of that pressure cooker, just can help quieten the thinking. Sometimes by attending to emotion, it's just, it's kind of flagging up, that's uh, using thoughts to flag up a sense of, oh, give attention to the chitta state, the, the emotion that's here. The, the body is so key in this because we can notice with really difficult thoughts or the body tightens up in proportion to the degree of reactivity to thoughts. So like panicky thoughts or really angry thoughts, uh, the body gets very tight. And to move the body, to soften the body, uh, with one of the groups yesterday, we were reflecting that sitting with certain mental states and thought patterns is often really unhelpful because we just get taken over by it. It can lead us to get into a kind of freeze state if it's really scary, you know. Certainly lying down with 
certain moods and mental states just can lead to feeling overwhelmed and very disempowered. But walking with, walking with difficult mental states is often very helpful for digesting them, for, for kind of letting the fight flight aspect kind of help metabolize that difficult mental state or that difficult thought pattern. You know, letting, letting a sense of agency, I can move with this, I'm not frozen to the spot, you know. <clears throat> what, what, this is all part of the insight that what makes thoughts feel so solid, whether those are verbal thoughts or visual thoughts, like flashbacks, is the, the aversion, the fixation, the aversion to the Vedana of them the aversion to the Vedana of them, which tightens the mind and tightens the body. So just, you know, moving, moving the torso that may have got tightened up can be very helpful. <clears throat> protecting the mind with meta phrases, you know, in those situations, protect the Buddha recommended using wholesome thoughts like metaphrases as a way of protecting the mind when it's feeling very vulnerable. You know. All of this really in support of learning to see thoughts as just thoughts, to see thinking as just thinking, as not self, not me, not mine. Joseph Goldstein puts it like this. He says, if we haven't seen the selfless nature of thoughts, we're tormented by them. When we do see this, they become like a wisp of air. There's not much there. There's not much there. You know? And you, you might want to play with that today just to, to allow can can i have a sense of what is the thought it's just like a wisp of air you know an ownerless an ownerless mind moment an ownerless mind moment no owner to it just a wisp of air passing through so i'm aware there's a lot a lot in that um uh, but it is such a rich and important theme, both for us and for those we teach and work with as clients. Um, so again, just picking up anything that's helpful, letting go of the rest. Why don't we um, move into a period of sitting uh, where we could just explore a little bit of this sitting or standing, lying down if that feels most helpful, walking if that feels most helpful. Really taking time to ground, really feeling and appreciating the sanity 
of ground. The ground of the floor, the ground of whatever we're sitting on. The weight of the limbs, the legs, the arms. The nourishment of the breathing. And you might like just to open the awareness to hearing. Some of you will be very familiar with the way in which this can support uh, a more decentered, less identified relationship with thinking. But leaning first into the the ground of the body as it opens to hearing sounds arising and passing. almost as if the whole body was a microphone, just opening to silence, receiving silence and sounds as they arise and pass. Habits of thinking want to try to help by immediately coming up with visual thoughts or labels for what we think is making the sound. But seeing if we can attend more to the textures of sound. the vibrational flickering qualities of sound.
just allowing these to arise and pass within the open space of awareness. We don't have to get rid of the labeling thoughts or the visual thoughts. But just not making a problem out of them by really tuning attention to the embodied vibrational experience of sound. and of silence. mindfulness as a spacious and restful knowing or presence open to the vastness of silence, space, out of which sounds emerge and back into which they dissolve. you might like just in due course to also notice the arising and passing of thinking through this 
spacious, embodied awareness. Maybe visual thinking, images, or verbal thinking, thoughts. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Might even be musical. Just allowing, allowing thinking to arise and change and pass within the open space of awareness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.